Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for the gospel. And forgive us, Lord, for trusting ourselves or the way we feel or our performance instead of running to the cross every day. And you're the cornerstone, Jesus. You're the foundation. You're the rock. You're the alpha. You're the omega. You're the prophet. You're the priest. You're the king. You're the bright and morning star. You're the wise counselor. You are God. You're Messiah. You're king. You're mediator. You're our sacrifice. You're the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Forgive us for forgetting that. And uh, so we, we wait now, Holy Spirit, for you to change us and speak to us to bring in hearts reconciliation and joy and repentance and a reignition of our love for you. We just wait on you this morning. Christ, our cornerstone. Amen. Okay. So yesterday, in case you flew in last night from outer Mongolia, we had a primary here. And the top six vote-getters in the Republican primary yesterday all give statements about being friendly towards or committed to the Christian faith. And so it's, it's somewhat uh, accepted and even trendy to define yourself as a Christian, especially when you're running for public office in most places. And you understand that when that is kind of the way people are geared, how the church can sometimes be infiltrated by false teachers who are, Jesus says, wolves in sheep's clothing, and beware of false teachers. But, 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 but what, what blows my mind about the passage we're going to look at this morning is that the church that Peter's writing, the church in Asia Minor, in about 68 AD, has just gone through the four-year Nero persecution. And 64 was when the church started being persecuted by the Roman authorities, and that would go on in waves for another 260-some years until 313, when an edict was decreed called the Edict of Milan that said the Christian faith is okay. And, and so the church is getting great, going to a 250-year persecution. They've just gone through the persecution by Nero. To be called a Christian is to be marginalized, to be cast out, to be called a cannibal because they say they eat the body and drink the blood of this man named Jesus. Uh, they're accused of all types of nefarious conduct. And yet, even in this small church in Asia Minor, in a time of persecution, there are among the people, false teachers. Blows my mind. You understand when you're kind of a bigger group, but this is a small group. And so Peter writes with a, a deeply pastoral heart, and he says this. In first, excuse me, Second Peter chapter 2, we're going to deal with the first three verses. But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you. you will, they will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who Bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction. And many will follow their sensuality, and because of them, the way of the truth will be blasphemed. And in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. 
Their condemnation from long ago was not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. Destruction. We're familiar with destruction. For example, in Pompeii, Mount Vesuvius erupted, and people were literally buried in lava, and later now preserved for us, centuries and centuries later. We're familiar with destruction in the aftermath of hurricanes or tornadoes and this horrendous destruction. You've witnessed it. You've seen it. That's the word Peter uses here. So these false teachers bring destruction. They even deny the master who bought them by their lifestyle, by, by living with an uncaring, libertine attitude. They deny the master who died on the cross for our sins. And so I just want to look at these false teachers today and think about three points and then God's remedy to false teachers and very important that you hear. So, so first of all, point number one is, is here's, they, they secretly bring in destructive heresies. They, they, they secretly bring in. They, they, they work their way into your heart and into your affection, and, and then they start downgrading the Bible, downgrading the gospel, and downgrading the character of God. And, and so the, my point here is be very, very careful to whom you listen and be very, very careful to whom you give your ear and your heart. Now, all of us should have people that we love and care for who have nothing to do with the name of Christ. We should love them and care and have supper with them and befriend them and laugh with them and golf with them and picnic with them and everything. But now, here's my, be very careful to whom you give your innermost heart. Proverbs 13 says, he who walks with wise men will be wise, but the companion of fools will be destroyed. And there's that word again, destruction. Obliterated, wiped out, Ruined. So listen to some verses about your heart. Proverbs chapter 1, verse 7 and 8. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the but fools despise wisdom and instruction. Hear, my son, your father's instruction, and forsake not your mother's teaching. Hear your father's instruction. It's a pleading statement. And then in chapter 4. He says this, verse 4, verse 3, When I was a son with my father, tender and the only one in the sight of my mother, he taught me and said to me, Let your heart hold fast to my words and keep my commandments and live. Oh, son, hear my words. Heed them. Chapter 4, verse 23, Guard your heart with all diligence because from it flow the springs of life. Proverbs 23, verse 26, the father cries out, My son, give me your heart. Guard your hearts. The same concept is found in 2 Timothy chapter 1 where Paul says, I am reminded, Timothy, of your sincere faith, a faith that first dwelt in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and I'm sure it dwells in you. For this reason, I remind you to fan into a flame the gift of God that is in you. In other words, he says, Timothy, give me your heart. Jesus says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, your mind, your soul, and your strength with all your heart. Be very careful to whom you give your heart. Second Peter chapter 1, verse 13, we looked at this two weeks ago. Peter says, I think it is right as long as I'm in this body to stir you up by way of reminder so I want to stir you up, and I want you to remember, I want you to give me your heart. Be very careful to whom you give your heart. Be very careful to whom you listen. He says, false teachers will rise up among you in the church. 
this small, struggling, persecuted church, even among you. And they will introduce destructive heresies. And the word heresy means to, 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 to splinter aside and teach that which is wrong. Just to, to, to pull them aside. And so th- th- here's what happened. They got their heart, the hearts of the people, and they wormed their way into their affection. And they said, you know, yeah, just, just yeah. the apostle Peter, he's, he's really a pretty good guy. And he's written us this letter. But, you know, P- Peter <laughs> is a fisherman, a wealthy fisherman. But he doesn't have great training. I have been to some of the greatest universities in Asia Minor. And I have greater knowledge than the Apostle Peter. What he says is okay, but, but I can take you further down the road. How about the Apostle Paul? I mean, good grief. You know, Paul's background, he was, he was somebody who was persecuting the church and heartily approving of the death of men and women. Think of all the neuroses and the psychoses that he's working his way through. And you're going to listen to him? Maybe you should listen to me. And see, Peter, Peter understood that. He heard that. And this is what he says in the last few verses of his book, 2 Peter. He says, brothers, since we're waiting for these, be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace. And he says, as, he says Paul wrote to you according to the wisdom given him about these things, as he does in all of his letters when he speaks in them of these matters. There are some things in them that are hard to understand which ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction, there's that word, destruction, as they do the other scriptures. You therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, take care you're not carried away by the error of lawless people and lose your own stability. And and Peter says, listen, there are people that are going to come along, they're going to downgrade Paul and make light of what he says, and they're going to twist his writings, they're going to twist my writings, they're going to twist the writings of the, the apostles. And he says, beware, 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 don't go there. He says, the apostles were men carried along by the Holy Spirit who spoke the word of God to you. So if you're to avoid false teaching, you'd be very careful to understand they secretly get your affections, and they bring in heresy that splinters you off from the truth of the gospel. And then secondly is their message. We read in this passage that their message involved sensuality and greed. It says they, they, they secretly bring in destructive heresies. And many will follow, verse 2, their sensuality, their carnality, their libertine doctrine. And because of them, the truth of the gospel will be blasphemed. And he says later, in their greed... They seduce you. So sensuality and greed, nothing's new under the sun. Sensuality. So in our day and culture, you read some literature today, and you read about people who have open marriages. And open marriages basically are people who are married who say, it's okay if you cheat on me or go off. No, no, they wouldn't use the word cheat. If you, have, if you express your sexuality with another person, just tell me. Read about that in Hollywood. Couples have come out for open marriages. Nothing could be more gross or heinous or abusive to me. You want me to turn to the Incredible Hulk? You, you, you act like you're trying to win the affection of my wife. I'll open up a can on you. <laughs> on your head. And if you're bigger than me, I'm going to recruit somebody to do it with me. It's just Or you read, you read interviews and... Vanity Fair or Slate Magazine or whatever, and somebody will say, I heard this all the time, some, some incredibly gifted and attractive actor or actress 
says, you know, I would like to be monogamous in my marriage, but we're part of the animal kingdom, and just the animals are in heat occasionally, so am I. And I, can't, I just can't control it. It's just not normal to be committed to one person for a long time. And yet the Bible says that the marriage bed be undefiled. And I tell you, whenever you open up about sensuality, you will always find a group of people saying, Amen, brother, preach it. And yet the Bible says, enjoy your wife and let the marriage bed be undefiled. Embrace her, love her, be tender with her, enjoy sex, and let the marriage bed be undefiled. Sensuality, it, it, it's, 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 it's everywhere. Now I'm going to go into an R-rated statement. So be with Malcolm Mugridge, the great British correspondent, and writer who became a believer late in his life says, whenever people rebel against the living God, there is either a raised fist or a raised phallus. He's right. So, and the other, the other is just, just greed. Just greed. I was reading recently about, about a guy. He's a prime minister of a country in Southeast Asia. And uh, he's under investigation now by the, 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 that country's equivalent of the attorney general. And they discovered... They discovered in one of his bank accounts that was kind of not well known, a gift for $700 million. $700 million. And it was uh, given to him by a Saudi prince. And this country is an oil-producing country, and the Saudis were more developed, I, I guess. But, but, but the, the guy, the prime minister said this. He said, supposedly said it with a straight face. He's under investigation. He said, really, it was just a gift from one friend to another. I thought... How cool is that? I mean, really. So, so this, this, this guy gets the Friend of the Week Award from our church. We're going to send it to the Saudi prince, and thanks for being a great friend. And I thought, well, why don't I have friends like that? You know, somebody just dropped, hey, man, I enjoyed lunch the other day. I just dropped in $2 million in your bank account. Oh, man, thanks. Love you, man. Well, come on. So we're supposed to think that there's no greed involved, no shady dealings, no under-the-table negotiations, no you get to bid and you alone for this pipeline to bring oil. No. Greed. Sensuality and greed. And then, and then the, the detractors come in. This is, the, this is the game plan. The game plan is as old as the Garden of Eden. The sword of the serpent say to Eve... Has God really said you should not eat from the tree of good and knowledge? Good and evil. Yeah. And then, and then the devil says this. He says, well, let me, let me give you a commentary on why God said that. You won't die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil, close quote. And in other words, I, I'm going to attack the word of God and the character of God. God really isn't good. God's out to be a killjoy. He's out to destroy your life. He wants to beat you up and hold you down and make you a, 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 a sycophantical servant of his. He doesn't love you. God's word isn't binding and his character is not good. That's exactly what the devil does. And he has been. And here, here's the sad, the sad part of this passage. It's all sad. The cascading effect. The, the cascading effect is this. Listen, many, many, I don't know if many means three or four or five or 15, 
One is too many. It says, many will follow them. Many, I think in the context, in the church will follow them in their sensuality and their greed and their denial of the supremacy of Scripture and the apostolic teachings. Many will follow them in their sensuality. See, a ready-made audience. And because of them, the way of truth will be blasphemed or held in disrepute or looked down upon. So they came along and secretly won your affections. The message, sensuality and greed, questioned the character of God. And the result was the cascading effect of many people blaspheming. So I say to you, church, I say to us, if if I die this week, be very careful to whom you listen. Be very careful. Because if you listen to the wrong people, Destruction awaits you. Ruin awaits you. That's why Paul writes his last letter. He's on his last leg of his journey in 2 Timothy. And he says, Timothy, my dear son in the faith, preach the word. In season, out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and careful instruction. For a time will come when people around you don't want to hear the truth. And they want you to say A instead of B. But B is what the gospel says. So you better say B. I went to a seminary as did Dean and Carl's in Fort Worth, Texas called Southwestern Baptist Theological Seminary. It was started by a man named B.H. Carroll. B.H. Carroll was born and raised in Mississippi. As an 18-year-old, 17-year-old, he volunteered to fight in the war between the states and became a Texas Ranger, and he always loved learning. He would carry, instead of food in his saddlebags, he would carry books. And B.H. Carroll, after home, went back to his home, and his wife had just married, found out that the whole town talked about she had been living in open adultery. She wouldn't be reconciled. They divorced. He was heartbroken, and he went to a Methodist tent revival, and he heard the gospel, and he pondered the gospel, and he came to faith in Christ. And God used him as a preacher of the gospel, and he started this seminary, and he lived until he was 78. And on his deathbed in 1914, he called his mentor in who's going to take his place, a man named Lee Scarborough, and he said, Lee, keep the seminary lashed to the cross of Jesus. That's what he said. Keep the seminary lashed to the cross of Jesus. Glory in the gospel. And so I look at this passage and I think about false prophets and I ask myself, well, what is God's remedy to false prophets? To false teachers, excuse me, false teachers. Well, what is God's remedy? And here, here's the remedy, be people of the book. Love the apostolic truth. We, we have in chapter 1, we rehearsed this two weeks ago, Peter says in chapter 12, I, I want to remind you of these things, and I want to establish you in this truth, and I want to stir up your emotions by way of reminder. See, reminder, refresh, stir up. I will make every effort, verse 15, so that after my departure, you'll be able to recall these things. Remind them, remind them, remember, stir up, recall. And then he says in verse 19, he says, and we have something more sure, which is the prophetic word. 
to which you will do well to pay attention as a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts because these men wrote the scriptures they're carried along by the Holy Spirit. They were guarded by the living God. So you pay attention to the word. And so if, if you're to avoid these things, you be people of the book. And let me say this very quickly. This is not just, this is what's humbling. This is not just cognitively knowing doctrine, which that's part of it. But it's having your hearts molded by the Holy Spirit. And you say, God, this is your word. Spirit of the living God, fall fresh on me and change me and rebuke me and gladden me and teach me. John Newton, who wrote the hymn Amazing Grace, said this. I thought it was so well stated. He said, it is a mercy when people sense their blindness and they're willing to wait for the manifestation of God's power in the ordinances of his appointment. In other words, they, they, they understand they don't have it together. And they trip and stumble apart from the grace of the Lord given to them and poured into their heart. So is, 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 is the word of God lived out in the reality of the power of the Spirit in your life? That's how you guard against false teachers. You say, Spirit of the living God, take this word and change me. And the second thing we do is that truth is always done in the context of community. And this, is, this study on just this went, wow. I've never seen this before. Just a couple of weeks ago, I was reading 1 and 2 Peter, went, wow. So in 1 Peter, Peter's been talking about the living hope we have, and it's imperishable, undefiled, and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you. And he's just rejoicing in it, and he's so glad. And he talks about Christ, the the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, eternal God who was known before the foundation of the earth, but in these last days has been declared for your sake. And you're saved not with perishable things like silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ. And so he's just glorying in the greatness of Christ and all the Lord has done for us. And then in the very next verse, he says this, and I'm just going, where did that come from? Listen, maybe this hits you. Just, it's the very next verse. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for sincere brotherly love. Love one another fervently or earnestly from a pure heart. And I'm going, wow. In other words, all this has been accomplished in my life in part so that I can love my brothers and sisters. And you look at the character development that we've been studying, 2 Peter 1, add to your faith moral excellence, and in moral excellence, add knowledge and self-control and perseverance and godliness and what? Brotherly kindness and love. And so I just wrote down in my notes, I said, you know, the way I avoid error is I live the truth out in the community of God's people. So if I find a fight against the false teachers, Live the truth out in community. This study came out a few weeks ago. Let me just read it to you. Doctors talk about the importance of exercise and a sensible diet. And social scientists at the University of North Carolina analyzed four studies involving more than 14,000 people aged 12 to 91 years of age. The Washington Post reports their findings. The results indicate that the number and quality of a person's social connections affect specific measures of health over the course of a lifetime. 
Older adults who feel socially isolated are more than twice as likely to develop high blood pressure, making loneliness a more significant risk factor for the condition than diabetes. Social ties are also crucial early in your life. Lonely teenagers, for example, are less likely to develop inflammation as young people who are sedentary. The study shows for all age groups, researchers theorize social connections mitigate the harmful effects of daily stress. The author, a young woman named Yang Claire Yang, says do have a good and healthy diet and exercise, but also try to have a good social life. And I thought, we know that. We know that. If I'm to live it out, I've got to live it out in the context of community. Now, this week, and I'll mention this later, I'm going to hurry through this. This week was uh, the death date of one of my heroes. I celebrate some of my heroes on the day they died. Martin Luther died February the 18th, 1546. And so I've reread and read through this biography by Heiko Oberman. The best biography, I think, on Luther I've ever read, this or another one. But anyway, it's a very good biography. Let me just read what Luther, he just quoted some of Luther's sayings. Uh, I just thought this was very interesting. Martin Luther said this, The devil likes to have the Christian alone, for then he can heap him with worries and depression. He says, I know this well. I know the tricks he likes to play on me. He is a sad and sour spirit who does not like for the heart to be glad. Luther struggled with depression all of his life. Luther says, but God is the God of joy. Dark thoughts cannot be avoided. You cannot stop birds, he says, from flying over your head, but you can stop them from nesting in your hair. So, seek company. That's what he says. Seek company. Play cards. Or do something else you enjoy with a clear conscience to the glory of God. For depression does not come from God, but from the devil. He says this, apart from theology, music is God's greatest gift. It has much in common with theology because it heals the soul and raises the spirit. And Oberman says, Luther had always already enjoyed singing and making music as a youth. And without music, man is a stone, Luther says, but with music, he can drive away the devil. It has often revived me and relieved me from heavy burdens. So, cards, music, and company are all divine gifts. <laughs> and I thought, wow. And sometimes we just need the laughter of friends as we are together the company of God's people. You need to be in a community group. You need to be, have webs of relationships where people are full of joy and laughter and hope and love Jesus. And play cards. I don't know. One thing I thought, this is fun, I thought, Luther loved music, and, and, and this is before the Baroque period or the classical period, when I think the greatest music was written. And what, what would Luther say if he could have music with him as he walked? So they had to go to a cathedral, or, or, or they went to a small house where there was a musical family, which many people were because they all played music. Imagine, imagine he would just go, wow. And also, I just want to say to Dean and, and Dustin and Mike, thank you for the music here. It is glorious. Week after week. It does gladden my heart.
So, so, so community. Now, I want to talk to you about this. The basis for community. So if, if the Word of God in the context of community drives away false teaching, then, then my question is, what is the basis of community? And here's what I want you to, to go with me. So, so in Luke chapter 6, this story is told from the life of Jesus. He goes to the home of a Pharisee, and while he's at the home, uh, a disreputable woman, we think a woman given to immorality, comes in, um, and it says, she, she brought in an alabaster full of ointment and standing behind him at his feet. This is one of the greatest stories in the New Testament. I know you know it well. It says, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wipe them with her hair and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. Now, when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would have known and who and what sort of woman this is who's touching him, for she is a sinner. And Jesus, who could read thoughts, very dangerous to think around Jesus, you know, and Jesus answered him and said, Simon, I have something to say. He said, speak, teacher. Now, the Pharisees are good guys. The Pharisees were purity guys. They wouldn't do the right thing. They were repulsed by the easy nothingness of their culture. They get a bad rap. But sometimes they just went way too far and thought it was only the outward appearance. And Jesus says this, a certain money lender had two debtors, and one owed him 500, let's say $500, and the other owed him 50. And when he could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. And it was 500 million and 50,000. Now, which will love you the more? And Simon said, well, the one that was forgiven the larger debt. He says, you're right. And Jesus says, do you, do you see this woman? I entered your house, and you gave me no water for my feet, but she had wet my feet with her tears, and she wiped them with her hair. And you gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. And the feet were considered the lowest part of impurity. And you did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with oil. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven. For she loved much, but he who has been forgiven little loves little. And then Jesus looked at her and he said, your sins are forgiven. Then those who were at the table with him began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? And Jesus said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Only God can forgive sins. They knew that. And I just thought, a few, a few years down the road, I, if you live in a small town, the, the Bible word for an immoral woman is the word whore. And that's the word we use growing up. We say, well, she's a, she's a whore. Small town. We knew who the bad women were. You don't get away from it. People knew her. Small town. But I thought, a few years down the road, this woman who's been released from her sin, and she's gone in peace. Her sins are forgiven. And she's running a small business, and she's making money for her family, and she has a conflict with somebody over maybe an order, and the person says, well, you may be all uppity, but I know what you were a few years ago. You were a whore. And she may have said, you're right. But Jesus said, my sins are forgiven. And the same Jesus who forgave my sins died on the cross and rose from the dead and ascended into heaven. He's God. I don't walk under the title whore. I walk under the title forgiven. Wow. Then I thought about this poor Pharisee who really believed the way 
You somehow get to God is by trying harder and harder and harder. And he can never understand these words. Your sins are forgiven by someone who bore your burden. He, can't, he didn't get it. He, he, he never got because he's lived all of his life in the balanced scale of performance. So, so the, the basis of community church is, is grace. It's grace. I, I was reading this. I think I've got it up here. Yeah. This is a blog from a guy named Doug Wilson. I like his stuff. <laughs> he says, grace is wild and grace unsettles everything and grace overflows the banks and grace messes up your hair and grace is not tame and grace makes the pious begin to fear the evils of bad theology and, and this fear is swallowed up in the glory of God's forgiveness. Grace liberates us from guilt and enables us to live before God as we ought to in accordance with his law simply because we want to because we love him. The law is written on our hearts now and not on the tablets of stone over there somewhere. More than that, grace liberates us from false guilt, from the lying standards of the devil and concocted uh, to, pro to provide you with perpetual torment. And he says, let me give you an example. The American woman who is happy about her weight is as rare as Haley's Comet. If she lives guilt-free concerning what she eats, she's a rare specimen. He says, but listen to the grace of God. Hear these words from God. God the Father doesn't care that you weigh an extra 15 pounds. Neither does the Holy Spirit. Jesus doesn't care about that 10 pounds either. Not even a little bit. If, if God cared about this, he would have put something in the Bible about the BMI chart. Well, he doesn't care. So who does? The devil. He loves to accuse them, but little. All those bony women in clothing catalogs care. They wouldn't be sneering the way they do if they didn't care. And all those women's magazines at the supermarket, why can't you be made of bones and silicon? What could be more unnatural and from the pit of hell? <laughs> Grace is messy. And see, see the, the problem... The problem is that we, we can forget. This is just a little from a little book by a guy named Jim Strobel on the glory of grace. And he says, I'm, I know I'm running way over time. I'll be finished in five minutes. He talks about a young man who came to faith in Christ after living a wild life. He came to faith in Christ in his early 20s. And so he says, for a long time I'd failed my family and God. So after I became a believer in Jesus, I got a performance treadmill without even realizing it. I did the same thing. I was putting pressure on myself to please God as if I had to maintain my good standing with him by being a super Christian. I want to make up for lost time and show God that I was good enough to be justified. <laughs> Which is an oxymoron. And see, the guy says, what did you do? Well, he said, I fasted for days and I prayed endlessly and I served the homeless and I gave away everything I owned until I had a pair of jeans and a t-shirt and shoes. And people talk about how mature I was as a Christian and I was, yeah, I was doing good things but for the wrong reason. And I became a judgmental jerk. He says, yeah, I knew that I was saved by God's grace alone, but now I was trying to earn my keep. That's a great line. Saved by grace alone, I'm trying to earn my keep. Jesus had paid my debt, but I felt like I needed to repay him. Still, no matter how much I'd served, pray, sacrifice, it was never enough. In my mind, I kept falling short. I started to feel phony 
like I was only as good as my last performance, and my last performance was never, ever, 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 ever good enough. That's the gospel. So, so I was thinking of this, and I thought, you know, Jesus said to the immoral woman, your sins are forgiven. But see, that's just the beginning. The, the rest of the story is this. Your sins are forgiven. You're clothed in the garments of the family in the work of Jesus, and you're adopted into the family. And God gives you ice cream. Let me explain. See, there's one thing to have your sins forgiven, but it's another thing to be enveloped and embraced and brought into the family and given a robe of righteousness. That's why my favorite theologian in the last century, probably J.I. Packer, said that adoption is the apex of God's work in our life. Adoption, you're forgiven, you're clothed in righteousness, you're adopted, and God gives you ice cream. Here's where I get the ice cream part. It's just biblical. Matthew 7, Jesus says, if your son asks for a bread, you won't give him stone. If he asks for fish, you won't give him a snake. And if you then, though your evil parents know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your father give good gifts to those who call upon him? Now, I'm just saying that's shorthand for ice cream or Thai food or Indian curry, my favorite. So you're, you're forgiven, you're clothed, you're adopted, and you're celebrated. That's good. See, that, that's the basis of community. So, so back to Martin Luther. And with this, I close. Martin Luther died at age 62. He'd gone to settle dispute between some people. He had a flare-up of some issues, digestive issues, pregnant him all of his life. And on his deathbed... Luther said this. His, these were his last words. We're beggars. This is true. And that's not, well, we're, we're beggars. Oh, to grace, how great a debtor. We're beggars. This is true. Be careful. Be in the word. Be in community. To the glory of God. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for the, the privilege of grace. Thank you that grace takes messy people and weird people and whores, all kinds of folks, and, and uh, brings them to Jesus um, and Pharisees. And Lord, I think I, I can, I'm a recovering Pharisee. I need grace every day. So I, pr I pray that even today there would be people in these worship services who, who go, um, I, I've been trying to live like a Pharisee and please God. I, I've said the words, but I've never known the reality. And, and I pray you'd visit people with the glory and goodness of the gospel of grace. And Lord, forgive us for beginning by grace and then thinking we've got to continue by work. <laughs> how, how silly can we be? Thank you that Paul thundered against the church of Galatia, my foolish, foolish Galatians. How is it that you begin by grace and now think you can continue by effort? Lord, don't let us get that way. Don't let us get that way. So blessed be your name. Thank you that we're not only forgiven, but we're clothed and we're adopted and you throw a party. And that's good. 
In Jesus' name, amen.